0: welcome to a brand new edition of problematic women i'm Lauren evans and i'm kelsey bowler also in the studio today we have brenda Hafera, assistant director and senior policy analyst at the simon center here at the heritage foundation welcome brenda happy to be here it's a new day and with that brings another celebrity claiming to be a victim Today, it's tennis great Serena Williams. She announced that she's, quote-unquote, evolving away from tennis to focus on building a family and business opportunities, which sounds great, right? But here's what she said. Quote, if I were a guy, I wouldn't be writing this because I'd be out there playing and winning while my wife was doing the physical labor of expanding our family. Maybe I'd be more of a Tom Brady if I had that opportunity. So what do you think? Serena Williams, victim or not?
1: Lauren, this was from a Vogue cover story, uh, you know, she's featured on the front page. looking Where all
0: page. the victims are, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I think it is so, like, so bizarre that so many women and so many mothers constantly frame the fact that they have this beautiful ability to get pregnant as a burden rather than a blessing. Uh, We've heard Serena Williams talk about becoming a mother in the past, and it's something I I think she found very powerful. And yet she still, for some reason, wants to portray herself as a victim because she can get pregnant and men can't. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, I just think it's bizarre because if you asked any of these women, well, would you rather not be able to get pregnant and not carry a child so that you could continue your tennis career just like all the boys i'm guessing she would say no because you know pregnancy i will be the first to tell you is far from easy um it honestly in a lot of ways kinds of kind of sucks (laughs) but it is the most also the most beautiful blessing that i think very few if any women would trade with men for the world
2: Yeah, I mean, this is just part of life. It's just a fact that women are the ones who carry children and and men don't. And so that does involve some sacrifice. And in a certain sense, it's it's unfair. I do understand her sentiment a little bit of she's, in essence, mourning the loss of a chapter in her life. She is moving towards a new chapter. And it's a human tendency to look back and say, oh, that was a wonderful chapter and I wish I continue it. But I think it's more productive to look forward and say, but look at all the joys of this new chapter in my life. And motherhood and being a parent is a tremendous joy in life. It's one of the most important things in life. So I think it's better to focus on what you're gaining rather than what you're losing. Exactly. When you look back at
0: your life, when you're 80 years old, what are you going to think? Oh, I won 25 instead of 23 tennis championships or I had children, you know, mm-hmm. like that's just such a something that you can't even compare.
1: Yeah, I think she is looking at the glass half empty the rather than half full. And Serena Williams glass, I will tell you, is very, very full. <laughs> she has many <laughs> blessings in her life. And I personally refuse to label her as any sort of victim. Uh, For all these blessings that she has been afforded, including hopefully uh, having more children. I I believe she is 41. So I, I do hope she's able to fulfill this desire to grow her family.
2: Right, and at a certain point, she is 41, she's not going to be able to play tennis at a certain point in her life. You know, everyone who's an athlete at some point needs to let go of that because their body just can't handle the strain eventually. And I think Jordan Peterson said something that was a really good point in thinking about whether or not to have kids. And he said, what are you going to do for the rest Mm. of your life? What is it that's going to occupy your time? You want, you're going to live potentially 40, 50 more years. How are you going to spend your time? And I think children are just a wonderful addition to that time. Mm. Such a great discussion. We could probably spend a whole show on that, but we have a
0: ton to get to. Kelsey, what do we have on today's Problematic Women?
1: Up on today's Problematic Women everything in america seems to be going woke a new report from the heritage foundation takes a deep dive into how it's reached the home of our founding fathers we'll also share the stunning story of a chicago mom who lost custody of her daughter for insisting that her daughter is a girl along with another story of a male teacher in Washington State asking an 11-year-old girl who superficially identified as transgender whether she wanted to sleep in the boys' overnight cabin on a school trip. Pretty shocking stuff. Also, in case you missed it, the Senate passed a pretty major spending bill over the weekend. We're going to break down what exactly happened, what's in that bill, and its future in the House. And as always, of course, we will be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week.
0: Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left.
1: If you are a problematic woman or you just support strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and encouraging others to subscribe. Your support really does make a difference.
0: All right, let's get to it. Diving into our first topic, it seems like everything is woke these days, but... I mean, there must be some sacred things like the home of Thomas Jefferson or maybe James Madison, but nope. We have Brenda here to talk about this because you've been working on this report for a long time. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us kind of what was the genesis of why you decided to look into these homes?
2: Well, I studied the American founding. I work at the Simon Center for American Studies, so I'm kind of interested in those things. Um, But I have gone, in particular, to Monticello and Montpelier a number of times over the years. And Monticello, I did notice some changes that were going on. And we decided to take this on a project. I have written about Montpelier in the past. um, And I was concerned about some of the things that were going on at these homes. Um, Mount Vernon is still doing a very nice job. The report is called The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly because Mount Vernon is the good, Monticello is the bad, and Montpelier is the ugly.
1: Can you break down more about what the bad and the ugly looks
2: like? Sure. So at Mount Vernon, they have a very modest tone. They have paid careful attention to historical accuracy as well as the legacy of George Washington. So that's why Mount Vernon is the good in our assessment. Monticello is the bad because they have really stepped away or haven't given sufficient time to the accomplishments of Thomas Jefferson. So the exhibits entail some exhibits in the cellars on the life of Sally Hemings, the purpose of those rooms, as well as the enslaved families and individuals who lived there, They've reconstructed the quarters along Mulberry Row, and at the base of the mountain are some exhibits on the building of Monticello, Thomas Jefferson as an architect and scientist, and a brief video on Thomas Jefferson, the building of Monticello, and the enslaved people. So there are no exhibits currently there dedicated to Thomas Jefferson as president, as vice president, as minister to France, or author of the Declaration of Independence or Virginia Statute of Mm. Religious Freedom, and even independent of Jefferson himself, it's important to study these documents to understand our character as Americans. The Declaration is incredibly important, and unfortunately sometimes guides at Monticello declare that all men are created equal doesn't apply to everyone, and that's just inaccurate. Men is a substitute for mankind. And then moving on to Montpelier, there are unfortunately no exhibits dedicated to James Madison at Montpelier. The House tour focuses on James and Dolly Madison, the enslaved people and the Constitution. So they talk about Madison during a portion of that tour. And there's a brief video in the Visitor Center, which also labels Madison a slave owner and the Constitution racist. What dominates at Montpelier is the mere distinction of color exhibits, which is a series of exhibits on slavery in the cellars and in the South Yard. And Montpelier also believes that it's not enough to discuss the contributions and humanity of the enslaved that these sorts of sites need to also unpack and interrogate white privilege and supremacy and systemic racism. So what's really missing at Montpelier is a dedication to James Madison, who was our fourth president. He was the father of the Constitution, the primary drafter of the Bill of Rights, and wrote many of the Federalist papers. And he's just not being given his due at Montpelier
0: these are just two museums, right, in Virginia. Why is it important that we focus on these and unpack the the lies that they're trying to sell to Americans when they visit them?
2: Well, one, these are symbolic sites, right? These are centers of our history. These are the homes of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison. Um, there are few founders who are of equal importance, if any, to these three men, so they have contributed a great deal to the American founding and the principles in our Constitution and Declaration. But I think it's important to try and understand what these folks are after. So there's the exhibit on the Constitution at James Madison's home. Is not focused on the remarkableness of that document or James Madison's role in shaping it. It really tries to point out all the clauses in the Constitution that pertain to slavery, even though the words slave and slavery never appear in the Constitution. And it goes farther than most people would expect. Most people would name the Three-Fifths Compromise, the Fugitive Slave Law, and the Atlantic Slave Trade as the clauses that deal with slavery. Montpelier goes further than that, and the exhibit is often misleading. They don't, for example, explain that Madison said that the delegates at the convention refused to admit into the Constitution the principle that there could be property in men, which is the constitutional basis which eventually led to the extinguishment of slavery. And all this, I think, is a way to diminish and distort not only Madison but the Constitution itself. So if you undermine the American founders, you undermine the principles of America and you create the opportunity for those principles to be replaced by something else, something like critical race theory or identity politics.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that gets to the next question I wanted to ask. The central theme of all of these revisionist history changes seems to be problematic men if i may <laughs> <laughs> that the founding fathers were imperfect beings and in an attempt to uh i guess make up for their flaws you know those pulling the strings here are making these gross overcorrections instead of just acknowledging um you know the the men for all they all they were do you think this is a coincidence or is it really a concentrated
2: effort it's a concerted effort and like you said i don't think that any good-hearted american wants to whitewash our history or eliminate a discussion about slavery we should be discussing slavery as an institution but always acknowledging that this is an institution that was always contradictory to our principles rather than placing it as the driving force behind America, which Montpelier seems to be wanting to do as they say that slavery kind of animates both the economy and the Constitution. And what are who are some of the actors who are behind this? Right. So – at Montpelier, for example, it seems that the Southern Poverty Law Center has been very influential. The folks who produce the video on slavery's lasting legacies that it is in the basement that contends that there are probably more defeats in pursuit of fairness and equality and justice in American history than there are moments of triumph. That video was produced by an SPLC associate. There are multiple commonalities between the SPLC curriculum and the exhibits at Montpelier. All eight of the children's books that are featured in Montpelier's exhibit on teaching kids about race and slavery were recommended by the SPLC. Recently, SPLC associates were nominated to the Montpelier board. One was chosen and another was invited to serve on an advisory council. And in the past, those associates participated in a summit that produced a set of guidelines for how slavery should be taught at historical sites. And this is where they mention that it's not enough to discuss the humanity of contributions of the enslaved. They also have to unpack and interrogate white supremacy and also engage visitors on those topics. Montpelier is owned by the National Trust for Historic Preservation, which owns 27 historic sites around the country, and their subsidiary has received funding from large corporations, including Ford and Mellon, as well as George Soros' group. And they also made recommendations in front of the House of Representatives for how these sorts of funds should be spent by the federal government for historic preservation and engage in grassroots activism.
1: Brenda, this is all very concerning. And before we move on to our next topic, I want to briefly ask, what can we do to push back against, again, this revisionist history?
2: Right. So I would say there are kind of two main buckets. So one bucket is what can we do now? And one of those things is choose who to support. Mount Vernon is still doing a nice job. Some of these other sites are not. We have put together a parental guide to accompany the report so parents can know what to expect when they bring their kids to these sites. And also, I would say, write an honest review after going to these places or and give feedback about what they're doing well and what they're doing poorly, what changes you would like to see made. And then going forward, I think we need to be extremely vigilant. So the National Trust, as I mentioned, has 27 sites around the country. They have almost $50 million in assets. They have this grassroots movement they make recommendations in front of Congress. So there's a great potential for this narrative to spread elsewhere. And Montpelier also received state funding for special projects, which includes the development of anti-racist curriculum for use in Virginia public schools. So parents need to be very vigilant That this curriculum could come to their schools and it could come without parental knowledge because the SPLC has done that in the past. So Heritage also has a guide for how to identify critical race theory, which parents can take a look at so they're better informed.
0: Brenda, thank you so much for your work
2: on this important topic. For our listeners,
0: we're going to go ahead and put your report, the good, the bad and the ugly in the show notes. So make sure as soon as you're done listening to this podcast to go and check it out.
1: If you're enjoying this episode of Problematic Women and want to find other like-minded podcasts, look no further than She Thinks. She Thinks is a podcast production of Independent Women's Forum every Friday at 9 a.m. Eastern. Host Beverly Hallberg is joined by policymakers and thought leaders to cut through the spin and bring you facts on the issues that matter most. From the economy to education to foreign policy and everything in between, She Thinks has you covered. Can't wait for the next episode to drop. You can listen to past episodes at IWF.org or search for She Thinks Podcast in your favorite podcast app. Speaking of Independent Women's Forum, for the past couple months, I've been working on a short documentary series for IWF called Identity Crisis, which tells seven stories that the transgender movement doesn't want the public to hear. The number of transgender-identifying youth has nearly doubled in recent years, leaving politicians, educators, and medical professionals and the public at odds over what policies are best suited to protect the health and well-being of children. Parents feel lost, confused, and alone as a one-sided media echo chamber repeats the lie that in order to save their child, they must affirm their child's chosen gender identity. Our videos feature four mothers whose daughters fell victim to gender ideology, two detransitioners who now warn of the harms this movement is causing, and one mental health professional who rails against her profession for prioritizing political correctness over public health. Let's play a clip of the second video released in the series that just published this week involving a mother from Washington State named Jennifer. Jennifer.
2: My daughter, she's out. She's desisted. She's, she doesn't believe she's a boy anymore. But what happened was that I learned about all these thousands and thousands of families that I'm talking to. And many of them are my good friends now. We understand each other in a way that, you know, most people don't understand what we've gone through. It's like we have gone to war together. That's what it feels like. This is like a war on our families.
1: So Jennifer's daughter first identified as transgender when she was 10 years old. At the time, her parents didn't think much of it beyond harmless identity exploration. But the public school where her daughter attended in a suburb of Washington State quickly worked to affirm her male identity against Jennifer and her husband's objections, even asking their daughter to room in the boys' cabin on a three-night field trip. Jennifer suspected that her daughter's transgender identity wasn't genuine, and a year and a half later, her daughter let go of it. But with educators, politicians, health professionals, and the media all pressuring parents to affirm, Jennifer is now putting her face on camera to warn parents that there is another possible outcome if a child is not affirmed, an outcome that doesn't subject children to a lifetime of harmful medical procedures. So, Lauren and Brenda... Jennifer is very brave to go on camera and share her story. Of course, this is deeply personal, and all these mothers who I've spoken with have very serious privacy concerns about their daughters. Um, For that reason, we blurred out photos of Jennifer's daughter's face in the video, and we are not using Jennifer's last name so that her daughter has uh, a level of protection. Uh, But I can't help but wonder what is the media the the corporate media's excuse for not interviewing these parents not including their stories in the the very real conversations we're having regarding this affirmation only model because there are so many stories that i'm learning of where children pretty quickly do desist again in the case of jennifer it it happened within about a year and a half, and the school her daughter attended really worked behind her back during counselor sessions, uh, using the male pronouns for her daughter from the very first meeting, um, despite Jennifer's objections. And so, I you know I find it very concerning <laughs> that all these different institutions in American society are rushing um, to affirm these children when. These very real stories do exist, and they are not that hard to find of children letting go of their identity delusions very shortly after they start.
0: Yeah, Kelsey, I think it's because this is one argument that they don't have the science behind. I would say they have a lot of arguments that they don't have the science behind, but here it's glaringly obvious. A woman is a woman and a man is a man, and you can have all the surgery and change your clothes as much as you want, and you still can't change that fact. And you you can say, okay, there are some people who might be intersex or there there might even be a small percentage of the population, typically born male, who who might struggle with their gender identity, but at the end of the day they they are trying to put this weird sexualization that adults have of of their attractions and how they feel and they're trying to push these things on children to normalize it over and over again i think the craziest part about this is that the school did this behind the parents back and it kind of shows how this is all interrelated that we're going to talk about, that we have the government that funds the Department of Education who who all this infiltrates. They take the kids on the field trips to these woke museums. So everywhere, parents are being barraged by this identity, just nonsense. And it's really important that you have these conversations with your children. If you don't have kids, have these conversations with your sister or brother who might have children or your friends who might be becoming parents, because we live in this point in society, it's so sad that we have to really just tell a child that like, you're a a girl, and you're loved as a girl, and you're beautiful as a girl, or even you're beautiful as a boy, if you were born a boy, and that even though society might tell you that you can change, and that might make you happier,
2: nothing will make you happy except for loving others and loving God. I think a big part of this is just fear. And understandably so, the people who come out and speak against this, their lives are just made miserable. They're canceled. They're vilified. Abigail Schreier is an example of this. I mean, some of these teachers really do believe these things and are pushing them on kids. But many people are just afraid to speak out or opposing views are censored on social media it's almost the religion of our area that this is the thing that you cannot speak against, or else your life will be completely destroyed. So, I really applaud these parents who are speaking out, who are often emotionally blackmailed by being told things like, Well, would you rather have a dead daughter or a healthy son? Mm. Right. So they're being told these things which are not actually true. And understandably, it, it frightens parents of they love their kids and they're just they're trying to do what's best for their children.
1: Absolutely. It's also interesting how all of the mothers I spoke with are either left leaning or very far left. Uh, voted Democrat their entire lives. Um And they really talk about feeling betrayed by the politicians whom they've spent a lifetime supporting on this issue to the point that there are many, if not all, are not willing to vote for these political figures anymore because they believe the harm being done to children is that serious. Um, And also, you mentioned, you know, their feelings of um, fear in speaking out and, uh, how their lives can get destroyed. Well, that very much brings me to the mother we featured a couple weeks ago named Jeanette Cooper. She actually did use her full name. Uh, it is her maiden name, so she is still protecting her daughter's identity because she is divorced and her daughter has her ex-husband's last name. Uh, Jeanette Cooper has an incredibly tragic story um Shortly, about three years after she and her husband got divorced, um, they amicably decided that Jeanette, the mother, would have custody of her daughter seven nights, six days a week. Um, But after a regular custodial visit, when her daughter was about um, 12 years old, she Uh, decided she didn't want to come home from her father's house that she felt unsafe around her mother. And what happened was the courts basically stripped Jeanette of all of her basic parenting rights simply for insisting that her daughter is a girl. Her daughter declared she is transgender, that she felt unsafe around her mother, and Jeanette has now not seen her daughter for more than 10 hours in the past three years. She has Mm -hmm. missed multiple birthdays. She doesn't even know how tall her daughter is. She lives 10 minutes away, but can't see her. Mm -hmm. The only way she can communicate with her daughter is by U S mail. So lives and families are absolutely being destroyed by this ideology. And I can't help but ask how, how can anybody seriously, buy into this notion that the gender ideology movement is wrapped in tolerance and compassion for children when it is literally ripping children away from their parents, driving wedges in between parents and their children. And in the the case of Jeanette Cooper, it is physically and emotionally separating them. Jeanette Cooper will tell you she has suffered immensely through this. But her daughter is the greatest victim in it all. Mm. Her daughter is the one who is going to have serious lifelong repercussions. And I will mention as a side, her daughter, who initially declared she was transgender, identified as a boy over the three years, evolved. And now, according to public appearances, appears to identify as some form of non-binary, uses pronouns, (laughs) Z-Zer-Zim. Um, So this mother lost custody of her daughter because she supposedly doesn't have an understanding of this transgender identity, and yet the daughter doesn't fully understand how she wants to identify. Of course, Jeanette will tell you she very much has an understanding of a transgender identity. It is just not the understanding that the courts want her to have. Absolutely tragic. Um, I'll play a short clip where you can hear directly from Jeanette, where she very beautifully explains why she is taking the stand despite the sacrifices.
3: I see that my child is at sea in a boat. She is struggling. She is in kind of tumultuous seas. I know that. I have seen that. And what I have been told is to follow her lead to follow her in this journey. I am not willing to do that. I don't think that is good parenting. It's my responsibility not to hook my boat to hers. It is my responsibility to be a lighthouse, to be something stable that she can see, some guide that she has that will always be there, that is consistent. I still do that today, even though I have no custody of her. I have no medical decision-making, no educational decision-making, and no way to communicate with her other than by mail. I don't have her phone number. I know where she lives, but I'm not allowed to go there. I know where she goes to school, and I'm not allowed there either. But this is parenting. What I'm doing, even though I have no real contact with her, I am still a parent. I am still her mother. I am still parenting now
0: i think what i got all the documentary the most kelsey is that why would anybody live in chicago
1: <laughs> after all of this <laughs> yeah the mom is from liberal area chicago but as i mentioned she she actually identifies as a radical feminist um mm-hmm. so the, these aren't like conservative crunchy conservative religious people who are refusing to affirm their children um, this very much is affecting families of all different political persuasions all across the country. Um, you know, I'd say in places like Washington State and California, it is all the more terrifying because in those states at ages um, 12, 13, 14 years old, children are actually able to obtain um, gender medical procedures, transition hormones, and, and, and so forth, without parental knowledge and consent. Um, parents will be billed through their insurance without an explanation of benefits. So they will be forced to pay for these medications, but they have no right under some of these laws that are popping up to even know the medical procedures or the medication, supposed med- medications that their children are receiving. It is terrifying, and parents need to wake up. If parents live out there and their children are going through this, I think it is a very scary reality. And that first mother, um, Jennifer, who I mentioned at the top, speaks directly about this and how it really um, posed a threat to her daughter's health and well-being.
2: The documentary is just heartbreaking and it almost it doesn't even feel real it's it like this is so unbelievable and so awful what happened to this woman and to her child that it feels like a different reality and there is so much damage being done to this child who is now being raised without her mom and we have so many statistics on how kids do better with both parents and that the state has stepped in And deprive this little girl of her mom's influence is really just tremendously inappropriate and sad. And
0: Kelsey, I'm going to take a minute to brag on you because I know you won't do it yourself. I think it was the Friday before last, right after this documentary comes out. My mom texts me and she's, she's like, Kelsey's on Ben Shapiro. I'm like, what are you talking about? Ben Shapiro spent about half of his show the other day talking about this documentary and it's doing very well on YouTube. And I think Kelsey, it just shows why your work on this is so important. So I just want to take a moment to, to thank you for, for doing this and for finding these stories and doing such a beautiful job of telling them.
1: I appreciate that Lauren. And I want everyone listening to know that you can find Jeanette Cooper, the mother who lost custody of her child for insisting that she's a girl. You can find her story posted on Daily Signal. The headline is How Gender Ideology Cost a Chicago Mother Custody of Her Child. Um, You can learn more details and watch the video there. You can also watch both videos posted right at the top of IWF.org. We'll post these links in the show notes. Um, But we really appreciate you helping to get these stories out there because sadly, we know the corporate media is ignoring them and these parents are taking a very brave stand by putting their faces on cameras and telling They're very personal stories, and they need all the support that we can help them get.
0: All right, for our last topic, we're going to have to go fast. This will be a little bit of a rapid fire, but it's important to know that the so-called Inflation Reduction Act passed through the Senate this weekend via a tie-breaking vote from Vice President Kamala Harris. For political nerds, it was a crazy 48 hours on Capitol Hill with senators voting literally throughout the night and passing the bill late Sunday morning. However, fireworks aside, this bill is bad news for Americans. It's more big government spending which will raise taxes and costs, something that we can't ever afford, but especially not now, when we're in recession and over thirty trillion, and I, I think we just need to bring that up all the time. We are thirty trillion dollars in debt as a country. So I want to start kind of how we got here. The Senate is split evenly between Democrats and Republicans. The bill was passed through reconciliation. It's a process used for budgeting. You've probably heard that term before. But I think it's interesting to know that typically, when you try to pass a bill through the Senate, you have to get 60 votes. But 60 votes is a high threshold to hit. And the Senate and the House have to pass budgets, right? It is one the biggest thing that they do. So this tool called reconciliation actually makes it easier for bills to pass. You can't filibuster, you only need 50 votes. And I actually learned this and I thought it was really interesting. You don't even need the president to sign it. So that's why they had to make sure that everything in this bill really focused on the budget and that they couldn't add anything last minute because then it might not pass the test to keep it reconciliation would turn into regular legislation and need 60 votes. So when the Senate starts debate on it, they have 20 hours to bring amendments and vote on them. Senate Republicans use this as kind of a last ditch effort to either fix the bill or try to stop the bill. This started the process that is lovingly known as Votorama, And with it, senators propose and not all Republicans. There were some um, leftist senators Bernie Sanders put a couple amendments, and Raphael Warnock put some amendments, and over forty amendments were voted on in those twenty hours, and that included limiting taxes on Americans making under four hundred thousand. Biden promised it when he president. You think that would have passed? That failed. Protecting those making under four hundred thousand from IRS audits again. You think that's a no brainer? But that also failed. Stopping the U.S. from selling resources to China. Again, no-brainer, but failed. There was even an amendment that failed that said no taxpayer dollars can be used for cars produced using child or slave labor, which you just showed how laser-focused the Democrats were to get this big spending bill because they're just looking for some sort of win before the midterms. And so the bill passed. Uh, I think just right around lunchtime when, you know, most Americans had no idea that it was happening, really only if you were on Twitter watching C-SPAN, which is, you know, just a couple nerds. But, I mean, I wanted to get, A, what you guys thought about the bill and the way that they're just trying to ram it through. And, B, I mean, the Senate works for three days at a time and goes home for long weekends. Why did they decide to vote and pass this overnight when they would think Americans weren't watching?
2: Well, it's just so tone deaf. I mean, this is just terrible timing for when Americans are already struggling, you know, go to the grocery store and and see how much the prices have gone up. And the Democrats just decided that their agenda mattered more than the struggles of the American people and just rammed this through. And Kelsey, I want to ask you, so some are saying that this is a success.
0: They got it through. They're going to get their spending. But then a a lot of those right of center are saying, like, wait, recession's already bad. The inflation rate is crazy. Looking at the midterms, how do you think this is going to affect those races?
1: Yeah, I'll get to midterms in one second. But I have to point out, you know, first off in the short term, there are very serious concerns. We know this bill is very unlikely to actually um, address the record inflation that we've all mm-hmm. been dealing with all year. There's also long-term effects of this legislation that I don't think is getting the attention it deserves. The Congressional Budget Office issued its new long-term budget outlook, and there's there's this chart where it shows the the, the debt, the chart had to be expanded to fit the <laughs> level of debt that our country will mm. hold you know it's of course it's not just this legislation but it's this legislation on top of all the billions of dollars we have already spent under the Biden administration and administrations before that and it's a chart that anybody with children should be alarmed over because it is absolutely unsustainable and there are very again very serious long-term effects of going down this path politically you know, maybe some of these programs uh, (laughs) might be popular, but doubling the size of the IRS, I'm not sure that is a policy agenda that many Americans would be excited about. I'm not sure it would drive many voters on either side of the aisle (laughs) to (laughs) the polling booth. Um, And then, you know, of course, it it includes a lot of these Green New Deal provisions, uh, like green mail trucks, which again I, I'm not I'm not sure that is what voters in America really care about what they the number one concern of voters is inflation and so if this bill doesn't actually address inflation, uh, I, I, I'm i not sure how it will work in Democrats' favor. I love the sort of like Dark Brandon meme they're <laughs> pushing out right now. Um, that You know, Dark Brandon got this done behind the scenes. He's so powerful. And then the next second, we see a viral video of him getting off the helicopter <laughs> yeah. and he can't even get his suit jacket on. So I am not convinced that Dark Brandon really has any idea of what's going <laughs> on. Uh, but certainly there are far-left big spenders working overtime behind the scenes to ensure that our children and their children have lots of credit card bills to pay off in their future. Mm. And Lauren, wait, I have to ask. I was texting with you over the weekend when I learned that you actually spent your weekend voluntarily watching C-SPAN so that you could see all these shenanigans go down.
0: Oh, yeah, I was up till... After three o'clock in the morning on Saturday and then first thing on Sunday morning, I woke up and I turned it on I, and Kelsey and I were texting I'm like, cause I'm literally in my bed watching C-SPAN right now. It was just kind of <laughs> embarrassing, but I think it's important. It, it, there is something definitely really interesting and it's really to, to know that it's happening again, like everything we talk about on this show to let others around you know, because I don't think a lot of people know that the bill includes 87,000 new IRS agents at a cost of around $80 billion, which is just insane. It's going to cost you $5,100 in lost annual income with, in your family of four. And it, they're estimating, too, at the Heritage Foundation, a GDP loss of over $7.7 trillion over the next 18 years. So it's a, while it's not as big big and bad as the first Build Back Better bill, thank God, it is still a very scary bill.
1: Yeah, Lauren, 87,000 new IRS agents and eighty billion dollars to the IRS, I want to note that there are less than a thousand billionaires in the <laughs> country. So uh, everyday 80- Americans are you know, the, the administration claims that anyone making less than four hundred thousand is not going to be subjected to new IRS audits. I don't know how that's possible with all these new agents and not enough billionaires for them to target. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right, more bad news. We're going to have to say goodbye to Brenda and Kelsey this week. Brenda, Kelsey, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: (laughs) Stay tuned. We'll crown the
2: problematic woman of the week. It's easy to get overwhelmed by the 24-7 news cycle. So if you're looking for a way to keep up with the news that matters... The Daily Signal podcast brings you the top news of the day. Hosts Doug Blair, Rob Bluey, and me, Virginia Allen, bring you headlines and interviews with lawmakers, authors, and conservative activists. If you're a conservative who wants to be on top of the news, check out The Daily Signal podcast, available every weekday morning. Welcome back. It is now
0: that time, once again, my favorite time of the week, time to crown our problematic woman of the week, the crown goes to Susan Campbell of the Blue Ridge Pregnancy Center. Susan is the executive director of the center, which does so much great work supporting women and really coming alongside families as they experience unplanned pregnancies. After the Dobbs versus Jackson decision came down, which overturned Roe versus Wade, vandals attacked the center, breaking windows and even graffitiing outside of the center, including the phrase quote, If abortion ain't safe, you ain't safe. Last month, Virginia and I went down to Lynchburg, where the center is, to interview Susan and released a documentary this week on all the work the pregnancy centers do and the attacks
2: that they're facing. Here's a clip that baby in your womb is a living, breathing, growing thing. And most abortion clinics do the exact opposite. They tell you things like it's a blob of tissue, it's a clump of cells, it hasn't even developed yet. And the reality is that we know life begins at conception. All of our services are at no charge to anyone that comes through our doors. We see anywhere from 50 to 75 patients uh, on a really good month where uh, crisis is high. During COVID, it was even higher. Roe v. Wade doesn't change anything for what we do. Women will need us now more than ever.
0: We just wanted to take a moment to really highlight Susan and what the Blue Ridge Pregnancy Center does. Uh, Members of the left are just really attacking these centers and putting out these false allegations. And it's a shame to see that vandals pick up on these and then do physical violence to the center. So, Susan, keep up the good work, do not be discouraged, and make sure that you watch that full documentary. You're going to have a lot of homework after this show. You have Brenda's article, Kelsey's documentaries, and then this Daily Signal documentary. But I promise that you will not regret watching it. It's so heartwarming, but it's also really informative. And with that, that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. In the meantime, please subscribe and share Conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, CastBox, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a difference, and have a great week. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation.
2: It is a product of The Daily Signal produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen, and be sure to follow Problematic Women on Instagram.
0: We produce problematic women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host Bree Peyton.